Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Episode 26. He shrugged, decided he was notorious, and rang, whereupon a single bell inside the house, deep as the big boy of the Kaiser's church tower, intoned. Jeremy felt the vibrations through his fingers. After a minute, the door creaked open, and there stood a small man, hunched forward a little and leaning on a stick, wearing a, a dark grey frock coat and shiny black pantaloons. His boots were Wellington, and he wore a top hat. His face was lined, sallow. Jeremy guessed him to be fifty, perhaps more. Yes? Jeremy hesitated. John's voice was nasal, whining, yet his manner was aloof. At length he said, My good friend and colleague Franklin Spartani recommended you. John nodded, then pulled the door back and stood aside. You may turn left into the spooling room, he said. Jeremy did as he was bid, sitting on a greasy chair. The room was full of desks upon which hundreds of newspapers lay strewn. Elsewhere umbrella stands, slashed oil paintings, and stuffed porcos in glass-fronted cases. A single moo clock tick-tocked, and as John entered the room it lowed eleven a.m. Well, sir, John said, you must have work of import to arrive here in these hairy times. Indeed I do, Jeremy replied. I am Jeremy Pantomile, of the Buckinghamshire Pantomiles, the very same, and I need your help. A while ago I was set up by somebody, to deleterious effect. I was arrested, on no basis whatsoever, by Murchison Volume of the Yard. I believe I know who set me up. Then, a few nights ago, I stumbled across none other than Jacques. Le Violin? The very same. And I believe I know who he is. The same person who set you up? Sir Hosley Fane. I want you to prove my case. John uttered a sound like a goose honking, which Jeremy realised after a few moments was laughter. Fane of the Suicide Club, my goodness, Sir Hosley Fane, and you a member of that institution also. This is no boy's tattle fight, Jeremy said, stung by John's reaction. I'd not come here on the basis of no evidence. Sir Hosley is the man, and he set me up. I'm sure a detective of your ability could prove this. It will be expensive. Rather expensive. Jeremy thought back to the wager and the likely loss of 99% of his fortune. As you know, he said, I am independently wealthy. John nodded. Then I will take on your case. John stood up, tottered over to Jeremy and shook his hand. With no Lilibet, Belvine had no access to the chameleonic Archimedean floating system. And with no chameleonic Archimedean floating system, he had no way of getting back to London. So he stole some silver spongs from the orchard-tied coffers. Nobody will notice, he reasoned to himself. Besides, even though I am banished, this is one of my ancestral homes. Another thought occurred to him. Besides, 
I killed the dragon, which really they should be paying me for. He took another handful of spongs to account for the dragon slaying. Tring boasted a railway station that terminated at St Pancras, so he bought a single ticket for the Chocolate Express. A third, second or first class, sir? The attendant asked. First, he replied. Ordinary first or superior? There came a twinge from his conscience. Ordinary, he replied. The express engine pulled up half an hour later, a line of 16 Nougat carriages behind it. Belvin got aboard the middle carriage, telling a conductor to lead him to his seat, and he travelled in style. All of the seats in the first-class carriage were studded with Brazil nuts, their marshmallow cushions the epitome of luxury, while from aerial trays, dainty serving women offered whipped cream and cocoa trumpets. Velvine enjoyed himself, ordering a carton of milk chock cat's eyes for later. At St Pancras, however, he faced once more the problem of hairy London. He had become used to flying over the city, but now he had to confront it again. Fortunately, he had only to walk half a mile or so to reach Gordon Square, so he did what everyone else on the Chocolate Express did. He set out to make his own way to the city, slowly but surely. The hair along Euston Street was tough as wire, and by the time he turned left into Upper Woburn, he was sweaty and irritated. But, heading south, the hair turned fine and blonde, and he was able to make better progress. At Gordon Square, he walked up to the steps leading to the flat owned by the Marxist-Leninist Workers' Movement of London. He had said goodbye with some conviction. Would they have him back? Would they ever remember him? He knocked on the door. It opened, and he saw Sylvia's face. He grinned. Well, hello, he said. To his great relief, she gestured him inside. Velvine Orchard Tide has returned, she told the assembled quartet in the main room. Velvine looked them over. Percivalia Quaint, the oldest of the group, who proofread the condition of the working classes in England for Engels, and whose hair was pure white. A Diamone Smith, a daughter of a Welsh labourer and a fiery orator, and Rocha Makewall, whose love of food was his downfall, but whose cunning exceeded that of the typical fox. Velvine said, are there still only five? Sylvia nodded and then shrugged. Counting you, yes. It is difficult to acquire new blood when hair blocks out every move. But London town boils with an uprising, Velvine said. I hope you might have heard of the Cockney uprising. Do you support it? Of course. Then what are the Marxist-Leninist workers doing? Sylvia threw him a copy of the Marxist-Leninist Times in reply, and Velvine scanned the front page. Marxist-Leninist Times. Emergency edition. London bankers fall at Throgmorton Street. Terrible loss of life. Revolution fomented by Pearly King and Queen. Watling Street frontline occupied. Terrible loss of life. From our Russian correspondent. Comrade, walk out if you can into the street and smell the smoke of the revolution. The only way to bring down the imperial aggressors is to rebel, to join the new Cockney uprising as a foot soldier, 
as a camp follower, to hold the placards, to sing the songs of joyous victory, to document the events of history in which we now are embroiled. Felvin felt anger well up inside him. Without finishing the article, he flung the newspaper to the ground and said, This is no good, Sylvia. We need action, and fast. What would Marx think if we supported the uprising from the sidelines, eh? He would be very proud of us. Well, Velvine agreed. Yes, he would be proud, but he would also want us physically to join the uprising. Have you spoken to this pearly king, eh? No, Sylvia replied, irritation showing on her face. Nor to the queen, neither. Then we must, now, soon. I agree, Rocha said. Velvine asked Sylvia, Do we have flying machinor on the roof? Of course not. Velvine pulled his rucksack onto his back. Then out we go, now and on foot. Sylvia nodded, though she seemed less than happy. Percivalia, Diamone, you stay here. We three will go out. Percivalia stood up and said, why don't you stop at Russell Square and see if that pre-Raphaelite William Morris's home? He might lend you a painting. Good idea, Sylvia said. Suddenly animated, she led the way downstairs, forging a path along Bedford Way, then into Russell Square, where, perusing her artist almanac, she located Morris's address. Soon she was speaking to him at the door. William, she said, it's a matter of great urgency. We need transport to the Cockney Uprising in Watling Street. Have you a suitable painting? Velvine knew Morris was a communist sympathiser who would lend them something. And he did. A painting by Holman Hunt of an eagle soaring above an Italianate scene. Don't get it dirty, he said. That's going to be worth a lot of money in a few years. Back in the square, Sylvia pulled the eagle out of the painting, mounting its back and then pulling Rocher and Velvine up behind her. Velvine made no complaint, though he would have preferred Rocher to pilot the great raptor. Sylvia looked as though she had flown before. In ten minutes they landed in Cannon Street, just down from St Paul's Cathedral, where lines of priests, vergers and choirboys stood defending the place with Bibles and manticores. Watling Street was an astonishing sight, Campfires burned along the length of the thoroughfare, while the noise of a hundred Joannas echoed in the smoke-filled sky. Barrel organs played, monkey chittered, eel, pie and mash were cooked in cauldrons. At the far end of the street he saw a sequin-studded marquee, which he knew must be the abode of the pearlies. So this the trio approached. Two fat women guarded the front entrance. What do you want? one asked. We're from the Marxist-Leninist Workers' Movement of London, Sylvia said, and we're here to speak with your leaders. Hmm. All right, we'll see. The other women entered the marquee. They waited, then, a minute later, were gestured inside. The Purleys, Velvine saw, were natives. Sylvia led him and Rocher to their jelly-smeared throne, saying, Greetings, Purley King and Queen. What do you ache? the pearly king replied. You is from Lenin? Sylvia gave the full name of her organisation, then said, 
We want to support the Cockney uprising in any way possible. Is there anything you need? Soldiers, man. You got a few hundred of them. Five, Sylvia said. The Pearlies laughed. No, serious, said the Pearly King. Yeah, five is better than none. Velvine stepped forward, unable to restrain himself. Your Madge, he said. Surely there is something more that we could offer. We have political theory, we have low cunning, and we have everything in between. Yeah, why not ask that Marx fella to write us a pamphlet? Get the masses on our side. Velvine smiled. An excellent idea. But Sylvia said, We don't know Karl Marx. We're a group affiliated to the Russian Marxist-Leninists. Wait, Velvine said, raising one hand in the air. I know Marx. What? Sylvia and Rocha said in unison. Sylvia added, You do not. I most certainly do. Velvine replied, with as much hauteur as he could muster. I met him in Highgate Cemetery, if you must know, and it was he who pulled the wool from my eyes and made me into the man I am today. Sylvia stared, and Velvine knew she did not believe. Rocher seemed likewise unconvinced. Well, I shall prove it, Velvine continued. I shall go now and see him. Yeah, you go, man, but I like in your coming here. That real good of you. With that, the trio were ushered out. Sylvia grabbed Velvine's arm and with venom said, You embarrassed me in front of the Pearlies themselves. How dare you come back to my group and try to take it over? I am not trying to take it over, Velvine replied, extracting himself from her grip. Besides, who are you to claim leadership, eh? We shall in due course have a cult of your personality. It is ludicrous. I'm not going to let you waste time scouring Highgate Cemetery. The Pearlies want us as soldiers. They said that, so that's how the working class cause can best be served. What shall we then do? Roger asked. Sylvia folded her arms and said, We're going back to Gordon Square. We're going to eat mouse on toast for supper. Then tomorrow morning, we're going to walk back down here, all five of us, and join the fight. Velvine took a deep breath. Well, that is not what I'm going to do, he said, dodging aside and turning. Without looking back, he ran for the eagle. Hey, Sylvia shouted, come back, thief, stop him. But her plea came too late. Velvine who had, in earlier years, ridden on the back of the leaf-hugging brassica bird of Borneo, jumped upon the eagle, grabbed feathers in each hand, and urged it to rise. This it did. To Highgate Cemetery, he cried. The eagle took him to the cemetery without complaint. But at the main entrance, the sign read, Karl Marx is out. The inn sign, Velvine noticed with some concern, was algae green from lack of use. Blast and sod, Velvine swore. But then he remembered something. Marx was known to frequent the British Library. It was too late in the day now to find him there, but perhaps in the morning. He slept in a hairy doorway in Highgate, as snug as a foot in a slipper, while the eagle, tethered by a piece of cowhide, squawked to itself.
Some hours after dawn, Velvine rose, then mounted the eagle and flew on to the British Library, where he tethered the eagle to a post in the street outside. A native man in black and green uniform carrying a shovel and bucket approached him, whereupon Velvine read the legend inscribed on his enormous epaulette. London Town Horse, Horseless Carriage, etc. Official Dung Service, number 2774. You can't park that eagle there, the man said. Velvine cursed with frustration. What? Why not, eh? I only need to go into the library for a few minutes. Yes, sir. And what would happen if everybody tried to park their vehicles here without paying? Crap all over the place and clouds of down feathers, sir. Officer 2774, this is an emergency. There is a Cockney uprising down south, and I need to find Karl Marx. The man pointed along the street and replied, Just pay at the wooden booth, sir. It's half-day closing today, so the rate is slightly reduced. Fuming, Velvine stomped down the street, paid over a silver spong, was told, Sorry, sir, we don't give change, then stomped back and stuck a scrap of blue writing paper on the eagle's beak. So much for the revolution, he growled. You people will suffocate it by wrapping it up like a damn parcel. I sincerely hope so, sir. Living in comfort at home was a joy for Cornucope after the perils of active service in Surrey. Enjoying tea and crumpets in the parlour, sleeping in a bed with sheets, and employing the housekeeping services of a maid were most enjoyable, especially the maid. And LaCortia seemed pleased to have the lord and lady of the house back. Hampstead, however, was as hairy as ever, and within days of their return, Cornucope found himself fretting about the situation and wondering what the government were doing. He did not have long to wait before he found out. One sunny Sunday morning, he pulled a copy of the Times from his letterbox and read an extraordinary headline. Cockney's March on City of London. Pearly King and Queen demand independence for East End. Great oats, Cornucope gasped, running into the kitchen. Dearest one, there is terrible news from town. The lower classes are rebelling. Rebelling? Cornucope read the opening paragraph aloud. From our home affairs correspondent, as London continues to sweat and heave beneath the great mat of hair, a new horror has arisen from the slums of the East End. Led by a twosome in sequin-encrusted garb, a rolling mass of labourers, traders and malcontents, from Whitechapel to Stepney, and from Wapping to Limehouse, has burst upon the scene, setting up headquarters in the grounds of St Paul's before moving on westwards. The government has set up a solid line of soldiers along Charing Cross Road, while Trafalgar Square, we are assured, will never be taken. I can scarcely believe this, Cornucope said. Shaken by the news and fearing the worst, he tried to raise Lord Blandhubble, on the telegraphical sitter-side-eye, but the operator said all the lines were busy. I'm not surprised, Estatia remarked, if there is to be a war between the West End and the East End. I have to do something, 
Cornucope said. He felt quite weak-kneed, appalled at the thought of so many commoners rampaging across his beloved city. Perhaps the Prime Minister will employ the services of the Suicide Club. Stay at home for now, Estatia advised. The hair is as thick as ever, and the underground unreliable. We've done our bit. Dearest one, no member of the Suicide Club ever stops doing his bit. We serve our country regardless of the cost. A duty, you know, yes, yes, the geographer's burden, I call it. But Cornucope did not have long to wait before news arrived of the government's intentions. At 3pm precisely, there came a knock at the front door. Then La Cautia approached him in the study and said, A Mr. Bain Flamarashit to see you. Send him in, Cornucope replied, placing his newspaper on the table and checking his appearance in a mirror. And fetch some tea and strawberry snaps. The visitor was a small, thin, middle-aged man with sharp features, balding pate, and a weary demeanour. His dark suit was covered with hairs. Hair still tough going, Cornucope remarked. So, Mr. Flamadrashit, what brings you to Hampstead? First, Mr. Weatherby, I must request the presence of your good lady wife. And then you will need to send the maid home early. What I have to say is top secret. Cornucope's heart leapt when he heard this. Fetching Estatia and dismissing Lacortia, he returned to the study, where he poured tea and burdened Bane's saucer with strawberry snaps. And now, he said, what is all this about? I work for the special hair service, Bane replied, passing over his identity papers, recently set up and directly responsible to the Prime Minister. Following your success in Kew Gardens and the subsequent demise of Gandhi, we took the opportunity to explore the headquarters of the secret Hindu movement. What we found greatly concerns us. What have you found? Estatia asked. We do not know, and that is why I'm here. Cornucope sat back. Though he was a veteran of the Peruvian rubber campaign, the Southern African Zulu wars and the comestible affair, he was nonetheless disconcerted by the gleam in Bane's eye, by the nervous, almost anxious posture of the man. Tell us everything, he said in a low voice. Bane hesitated, glanced out of the window, then continued. In the heart of the great glass house, we found a chamber covered with strange lettering and images made of some unbreakable substance shaped like an onion, but with a single steel door. And that door we can neither break nor unlock. What do the letters say? Estatia asked. We do not know. An Hindu mathematician at the Royal Institute took a look yesterday and said it was an ancient Vedic script. Estatia nodded. As you'll know if you've done your research, she said, I was in my youth a member of the rhododendron mob. To keep our plans secret, we used long-forgotten scripts to write our messages. Always our fear was that Kohinoor, Raja and Nohandas Gandhi would intercept our notes. She smiled, then nodded, as if recalling pleasant times. 
it may be that I can read this Vedic lettering. That is what we hoped, Bain said, knowing, as I do, your background. How'd we get to Kiel? Kornukop asked. A good point. Walking is out of the question. There is a war going on just down the road, though I should add the Kaiser is about to lose it. The underground is patchy at best. No, I thought, and with your permission, that this mission is so important, a motorised JR Falcon should be used. They are, by all accounts, difficult vehicles, Kornukop remarked. I've never used one. Also, they rarely work south of the polar latitudes. Bain nodded, then replied. RAF engineers down at Biggin Hill have altered one we captured from the Norwegian doomsayers, which will work in cool weather, such as we're experiencing now. For speed and convenience, it's perfect. Will you agree to board it? For the sake of my country, yes, Cornico paused, then said, but tell me what news of this Cockney uprising? Of that, I cannot speak. But the government defences are strong, Cornuco. In my opinion, my personal opinion, the uprising is a storm created by starvation that will, in due course, blow itself out. Let us hope so, Cornuco said. Bain stood up and clapped his hands together. Then all is agreed. The Gyre Falcon will arrive tomorrow. He glanced out of the window and added, it will land on the heath just across the road at ten sharp in the morning. We shall be ready. Next morning, dressed in leather jackets and flying goggles, Cornucope and Astatia awaited the great white bird, which landed in a crowd of downy feathers at a minute past ten. Boarding, Cornucope found himself in a leather-tooled lounge in which a young blonde lady sat bottles and glasses surrounding her. Gin and tonic, sir? she asked. Or would you prefer something stronger? G&T sounds good to me, he replied as he sat down on the two-person couch. What about you, dearest one? A double somerset on the rocks for me, Estatia replied. In this fashion, and nibbling small olives on sticks, they waited for the gyre falcon to take off. Lurching up and down as it flapped its wings, they clung on tight to their tumblers. The gyre falcon eventually lifted off the ground, uttering its eerie call as it did. A number of jackdaws mobbed it, but the gyre falcon saw them off with small arms fire. Twenty minutes later, they landed in Kew Gardens to be escorted to the glass house by a guardsman in red uniform and bearskin. From the south came the faintest hint of the Hampton Hill War. Distant rumbles, a pall in the sky. Then Cornucope saw Bain Flammarashit and a number of others, more elderly gentlemen. Good morning, Cornucope said. Estatia pressed her palms together and murmured, Namaste. Cornucope noticed at once how the gaze of every man was fixed upon her. I trust you had a pleasant flight? Bain asked. Both pleasant and safe, Cornucope replied. I must work for the special hair service more often. 
Bane led them into the glasshouse, then through a maze of gigantic plants, bakelite furniture and discarded watering troughs to a central platform, concealed, almost as if in green curtains, by a hemispherical mass of leaves growing downwards from an aerial mimosa tree. The sweet smell of the yellow flowers filled the air. This is a cunningly wrought sensitive tree, Bane explained, which the Indu grew to defend the chamber. If you touch the leaves, they move, setting off the alarm. We have done this. Poison sprays out from the tree bowl. We've lost three men so far. How should we then approach the chamber within? Cornucope asked. Bane pointed to a hole in the platform base. Not daring to move the whole tree, he said, we took five days to drill that. It leads to the chamber. I must warn you, however, that the gap between mimosa leaves and chamber is nowhere much more than a yard. Care will be required. Cornucope nodded. They squeezed through the tunnel as best they could. It was narrow, jagged and claustrophobic, until Cornucope, following Bane, was able to poke his head out and see the chamber. Emerging fully, he stood up and stared. The substance was dark grey, incised over all its surface with white letters and strange diagrams. The light, filtered by the mimosa, was weirdly green and made him feel a smidgen nauseous. Estacia emerged, then stood up. She too stared, taking in the majesty of the structure. What do you think? Bane asked her. Extraordinary, she replied. But look there, I've already seen a clue. A clue? Show us. Cornucope and Bane shuffled around the chamber until Estacia stopped and said, Here. She pointed to an image of a dancing man inside a flaming circle, whose right foot rested upon a recumbent child, and whose forearms were held outstretched as if in Terpsichorean delight, one hand inflamed, another holding a small drum. What is it? Bane asked. This is Lord Shiva, she said, balancing upon the demon Apasmara, the demon of ignorance. The chamber must be devoted to Lord Shiva. Bane nodded. And what are those dots and lines coming out of the flame surrounding him? Estacia shook her head, but then Cornucope remembered something. The diagrams of Rontgen from the Camden Town Institute. Why, they indicate high-energy waves and nuclear particles, he said, such as those discovered by old Rutherford. Then, this image is of a device, Bain said. Cornucope considered. The Hindus built a flying Kali, he pointed out. And then he noticed his wife's face had gone pale. What is it, dearest one? Lord Shiva, she said, is the destroyer. Why is he depicted emitting such terrible rays and particles? But are they terrible? Cornucope said. Shacklin Soon seemed happy enough to work with them. Is this the same Mrs. Soon, Bane said, who last week died most horribly? of radiation sickness.
You've just been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. If you have been continuing to be mystified by a gripping tale, why not go to iTunes to leave a rating or a review?